it is a uh, joyous season. Love this. Uh, a month ago, uh, I uh, asked you to ponder some things before the election on Tuesday. And, you know, Mike and I always appreciate feedback uh, on the messages. And uh, some of the feedback I got came from a mom who had a uh, young listener uh, listening as I was trying to explain just some basic facts about what had been happening. And uh, her young listener reached up and whispered to her, aren't we supposed to be listening to stuff about Jesus? (laughs) And I hope today you will understand uh, that we're going to ponder some, I'm going to present some things to ponder after the election Tuesday, and that that young man was exactly right. Uh, Because after the election, many of the commentators have been saying that our country has changed significantly. And really, we should not be surprised. That's exactly what the president promised, didn't he? Uh, But looking backwards, most people really understand that this change has been going on for quite a while. Some people certainly say the government has accelerated that change. But the, the point is that it has been happening over a long period of time and that what has happened in the last few years is that we have simply reached what some call the tipping point uh, in our culture. And this is not just a question of us having more people in the wagon than are pulling the wagon economically. Uh, As a country, we may have reached the moral tipping point as well. Uh, There's a, a study out now that says that 51% of Americans now believe that gay marriage should be an option. Now, whether that's literally true or not is is debatable, but, you know, you don't have to look far to see a pretty huge paradigm shift within our culture. Um, I was reminded of this uh, within the last few weeks, current events here, you know, we've had some pretty high officials who have gotten involved in marital infidelity. And so there's commentators on that because this involved national security. Uh, And so I saw one Republican congressman on a conservative news outlet, you know, complaining about this problem. But when the interviewer brought up the issue of this marital infidelity, he said, oh, wait, wait, wait. We've got to get past that. That is sanctimonious. We need to avoid that issue altogether. Then, even more surprisingly, I saw another interview with a very famous individual, happened to be the former mayor of our largest city, courageous man who took them through their darkest hour of 9-11, on the same issue, and when the interviewer got to the question about what does this marital infidelity, how does that affect our country, he said, oh, no, 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 no. We are operating under a new standard. We have got to grow up. And to her credit, the interviewer said, you know, I think the guy who committed adultery ought to grow up. And what I said was, way to go, Greta. Well, when the people that you agree with about the government 
and about the economy and about national security are saying that morality is irrelevant, it's off limits, you know that we have turned a corner. Seems like there's some work to be done here. Some time ago, a very wise man uh, said, or I heard him say, uh, and he happened to be the dean of a law school, that there are three ways to influence, change your culture. Uh, these are all important and cannot be ignored. They sometimes overlap, but they can be generally categorized. The least effective way, yet the most popular, is through law, also known as government, a.k.a. politics. Uh, we think that if we can just get the right people in the right places making just the right rules and laws and policies, uh, things will be better. Conversely, when those who oppose a biblical worldview are in power, you know, we're not so happy. This is both a practical and a biblical truth. Our rules and our rulers have a significant impact on our lives, and they set the example for our kids. They tend to establish what is normal and acceptable in our culture. Uh, shouldn't surprise you, the, the verse, I think, at the top of your sheet, if you've got one, the second part says, when the wicked rule, the people groan. I don't know about you, but I hear a lot of people groan these days. Uh, but the point is that we cannot ignore law, government, and I'm sorry to say, the political process. However, the problem with pinning our hopes, in other words, putting our faith primarily in government, is that there is of necessity an element of coercion involved. That is the very nature of human law. And when one side wins an election, there are going to be unhappy people on the other side because they are forced to accept the new policies, the law, and the worldview of those on the winning side. The winning side has a significant opportunity to shape the culture. The losing side acts as a counterbalance and simply has to await its opportunity. And while politicians and their supporters can and do go overboard regularly, just like in the courtroom, this adversarial nature of, of politics is not necessarily a bad thing because it provides an element of accountability and keeps both sides closer to the truth. Notice I said closer. Uh, most major elections turn on a relatively thin margin, meaning that if you win an election with 51% of the vote, you have a majority on your side, but it usually means you've got a significant portion of the populace who look at things differently. Uh, I would submit to you that our recent election is an example. Our country is as divided as, as I can recall, and both sides feel very strongly about their positions. The difference now seems to be that those who view the world through a biblical lens 
seem to be in the minority or at least are less likely to vote than those with other views. So how are the, te- the, the scales to be tipped back the other way? Well, in our country, we still have a strong concept of sharing our thoughts. We have the freedom to share our thoughts in civil discourse. Uh, because of this strong concept of freedom of speech, which is enshrined in the First Amendment to our Constitution, we still have the opportunity to convince skeptics that our ideas are better for the country or for the state or for our community than others. This is called the marketplace of ideas. And unlike other countries, under totalitarian or oppressive religious rules, all sides in the U.S. seem to agree that freedom of speech is a good thing. The real battle is who controls the forums for that speech. On the national level, it seems that those with a more biblical approach to life have the edge in the alternative media, like uh, radio and some cable outlets. Those from the other perspective have a pretty tight grip over the mainstream media, like most television and newspaper outlets. As in academia and in the legal profession, Christians have largely shied away from the field of journalism, and therefore, we don't control the main avenues of that field. But on the community and the local level, at least, we still have the opportunity to influence others through some means in this marketplace of ideas. But even there, that opportunity is taken less and less by those who are faint of heart. You see, our freedom of speech is being squeezed by cultural notions of proper speech, which we sometimes call political correctness. People are more and more afraid to speak out because they're going to be criticized. Still, whether through letters to the editor or speeches or messages from the pulpit, just personal conversations and through the Internet, ideas that make sense can still be communicated to anybody that wants to listen. The method of changing our culture, this method, the marketplace of ideas, has more promise than government and law because it targets the mind and reason to nudge others to what we used to call common sense. If you can change somebody's mind, you get beyond labels and party affiliations to real change. And we rely far too little on discussing our ideas in civil discourse, and we rely instead upon bumper sticker or buzzword arguments as the easier way to communicate our ideas. Now, according to this uh, law school dean that I've been quoting, the most effective way to change the culture is through evangelism and discipleship. You see, when a person comes to Christ, he is then instructed in the Word, and we go way beyond a change or perspective, a change of mind or perspective. This approach, evangelism and discipleship, this approach to changing our world, avoids the compulsion of law and convinces not just the mind, but it captures the heart. 
and motivates others to love and good works. Literally, a new life. In short, it makes life better for everybody. The first part of Proverbs 29, 2 states, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. A uh, close corollary would be Proverbs 11:10. When it goes well with the righteous, the whole city rejoices. Or Proverbs 28, 12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. Ronald Reagan put it another way, although in another context, when he said, a rising tide lifts all boats. When the righteous and consequently righteousness increases, everybody, including unbelievers, are better off. For that to happen, the world just needs to see that the biblical God knows better how to order our lives than the other gods of our culture. And yes, everybody has a God. Everybody. Anybody who denies that simply is unaware of their own presuppositions. The question that we have, that we've got to answer, is has God given us a clear enough picture of where we are right now? Has He provided enough motivation for us to get serious about living out our faith in an effective way, spreading the Word, being light, and reaching the lost, rather than just playing church? So how do we respond to the situation? I guess I would suggest that we stop complaining about our political state of affairs and get on with the business of the body of Christ, which includes reaching the lost, being salt and light. Business leaders tell us that to be successful, they must constantly reevaluate their products and their processes. That standing still is actually moving backwards. Companies downsize, they streamline, they reorganize all the time. Well, how about us? Do we reevaluate our goals or rethink our methods in light of the Word of God? Well, as a church, what is our goal? Is it growth? Most would say yes. Well, is that numerical or spiritual? Many church leaders today choose primarily the former, the numerical. And there's a whole industry of church growth programs and experts to assist them along. At Lion and Lamb, we seek to challenge men to lead in the home and in the church. We encourage all believers to grow spiritually by getting into the Word and then applying it to life as a vital member of the body of Christ. Our belief is that God will take care of who shows up on Sundays as long as we're teaching the truth, forming stronger relationships in an integrated body, and reaching out to the community. We believe that if our goal is just pursuing numbers, that will only make us more like the culture rather than the reverse. Because it's only through heart-level relationships and life-changing growth that believers in the church will truly change the culture around them. So how is this accomplished? We normally think of programs. Well, programs are useful tools. 
But in and of themselves, they're simply our best efforts to organize teaching and people. In other words, there's just the form or the process for accomplishing our goal. The substance of the Christian life, on the other hand, is the sacred relationship we all have with God, the sacrifice of Christ. Spiritual growth results from the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ in our lives. Jesus, as we know, is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the, the beginning and the end. What I'm trying to say it is, is that it is Jesus, not our ministries, activities, and programs, that causes real life-changing spiritual growth. And what this means is that the cornerstone of God's household must be Christ and our relationship with Him. The starting point for individual spiritual growth, you hear it all the time here. Read your Bible. Meditate on the Word. Pray regularly. Take ownership of your own relationship and your own convictions. Don't just piggyback on those of your parents. If you're a part of a family, you should be encouraging one another to grow. If you're leading a family, it is your responsibility to make that a priority. To be successful as a family, you've got to start by being a part of a vibrant and living church. To be successful as a single requires that you plug into the body of Christ. Christian lone rangers who do their own thing and kind of remain aloof from the body tend to weaken in their faith and in their love. You know, there's a real difference between thinking for yourself with strong personal convictions on the one hand and simply cutting off meaningful contact with the household which God calls all of us to inhabit. Just as Christ's ministry came out of his relationship with his heavenly Father, outreach to the lost for us comes from our relationship to God. If we have a lukewarm relationship with God, we can expect mediocre results in influencing others for Christ. The modern tendency to reel in pew-sitters through entertainment has resulted in a church which is a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, after a defeat or a real tail-whooping, most football coaches will go back to the basics, the fundamentals. So I want to suggest some points, three points that we need to look at seriously to get our own house in order. The first is that we need to know who we are in Christ. Why? Because who we are in Christ has a huge impact on what we do and why we do it. How we understand who God is and what He has done for us affects how we minister to others. If it is our goal to help others become more like Christ, we should probably know who He is and how He relates to us. Most of you have seen some or a lot of the faces of the children at the Haiti Lifeline Orphanage in pictures and many of you in person. Uh, many of my children and many of you have been to the orphanage and 
developed a strong connection with these orphans. In our home, uh, David's PC in the kitchen uh, has these smiling faces phasing in and out and in and out. And they just, they just draw you in when you look at them. But beneath those smiling faces, many, if not most, of these precious little ones live in constant fear. Theirs is a culture in which they've got to struggle and fight and sometimes connive just for survival. In short, they are extremely insecure. Even those who are adopted and come into loving families, many of those struggle to feel completely secure, loved, and accepted. And you and I are a lot like them. We were once lost, spiritual orphans. But now, through no merit of our own, Paul tells us that we have been adopted. We are His children. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And as His adopted children, we don't have to struggle with our condition because we are totally acceptable to God. If we understand the Bible, we know that we cannot improve our standing with God. We cannot become more acceptable. We cannot earn more favor of our Heavenly Father. Because our acceptance is based solely on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, not our relatively puny works. He will never leave us or forsake us because He cannot reject His own. We are free, therefore, to serve Him solely out of love, with thankfulness for what He has done and is doing and will continue to do in our lives. However, we have the very same tendencies as those adopted orphans. We will question God's acceptance We often tend to think that maybe He'll accept me more if I do more. He'll love me more if I do more. But this works kind of righteousness mindset is not really an appealing relationship with God. In Luke 10, we read about Jesus coming to the home of Martha, who invites Jesus in, and Sister Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to His words. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and bothered about so many things, but there's only one thing that is necessary. For Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. You see, Martha's well-intentioned but misplaced priority caused her to develop a martyr's complex, to focus on her sacrifices rather 
than the creator of the universe sitting in her living room. Her service was not wrong, but her priorities and her focus and her timing were a little off. But we do the very same thing when we focus on making our ministry work instead of the ministry of Christ. Now, should we stop serving? Not no, but heavens no. But our service and our work should spring from our desire to lift up Christ and relate the acceptance and the security and the peace and the rest and the love found only in a personal relationship with Him through our adoption. The second thing that I think we've got to do is we've got to simply trust Christ. Matthew 14 relates the account of Peter walking on the water and then the wind and the waves start to shake his faith, and then he sinks. Now, if we engage in relational ministry, there will be wind and waves of fear of rejection, intimidation, lack of results, our own weaknesses. And all these things are going to test and challenge our faith. Paul explained that he was given a thorn in the flesh in order to keep him humble. And he prayed that it would be removed three times. But then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, He, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It is through our weaknesses that the power of Christ is displayed to the world. It's not our ministries and efforts. It's only God who can change the hearts of people, draw in cynical skeptics, or build a group of households into a loving, integrated church body. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that we can plant, we can water, but God causes the growth. We have to trust that He will do what He says He will do. Faith requires that we wait upon God. We've got to be patient, especially during times of spiritual drought. Philippians 1 tells us, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Today, we've got this fast food, instant gratification, one-click culture. But ministry and spiritual growth is a process. We cannot simply get her done. Instead of looking for accomplishments or notches on our spiritual belts, we do better to think in terms of relationships. Think about our relationship with God. Jesus set the example, but he he does not dump 
all of our sins and mistakes on us at one time, and He certainly does not bring us into perfect harmony with His will all of a sudden. These things are processed through relationships with Him over time. And should our ministry with others be any different? His example of ministry is to lovingly and patiently convict us of our sin, then promise never to leave us or forsake us. We should do no less. Whether with our siblings in Christ or with unbelievers, we must model patience and love if we wish to impact their lives. To bring people into a personal and stronger walk with the Lord, we need relationships of faith rather than just empty shells of programs. The last basic that I'd like to cover is to perfect faith through the work of love. If we're going to rebuild on Christ, we've got to understand that this means His grace working itself out through love. Again, our example. Jesus trusted His heavenly Father's love. He sought His, his Father's will, not His own. When asked what is the great commandment, Jesus distilled the whole law down to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the greatest gift. Therefore, love as a standard that Jesus sets must be the basis and the reason for our ministry. The world says that love is an emotion, period. We can fall into emotional love, it lasts for a while, and then we can move on to another emotional love. And this approach to love is the basis of what I would call temporal marriage. That is, once the feelings are gone, we're no longer compatible, and we have grounds for divorce. Many dispense with this rather messy arrangement and decide that they can fall in love with one person one night and another the next. Well, while love certainly involves emotion, and a good marriage will have lots of emotion as well as intimacy, a biblical marriage is not based primarily on emotion. Rather, it is hard work. You have to intentionally look for ways to serve your life partner. Your love for that person should cause you to do whatever is necessary to work through the problems that inevitably come up and then go the extra mile to keep the excitement, the zing, the unity within the marital relationship. Biblical marriage is based upon biblical love. It is not just an emotion. And biblical love results in something. In Luke 7, we see the picture of the sinful woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair. Then she kisses His feet and anoints them with perfume while He was a guest in the house of a Pharisee who did none of those things. The Pharisee is incredulous that Jesus doesn't condemn her sin. But Jesus reminds his host, 
He who has been forgiven much loves much. Jesus continues, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus turns to the woman and says, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now at this point, you might ask, Ken, aren't you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? Uh, you said just a little while ago that our acceptance is based solely on Jesus' work on the cross, not our measly works. Now you seem to be saying we need to do the work of love. Which is it? Well, our family and our devotions is presently trying to memorize James 2. And in that passage, it asks the rhetorical question, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can faith save him? For example, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled somewhere else. But you don't give them those things which are needful for the body, what good is it? What does it profit? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Now, this confuses some. Because it kind of sounds like James is promoting salvation by works. But what we need to do is we need to read the whole passage. The context. Starting in verse 21, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac a son upon the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was, the King James uses the term made perfect. I think a better translation would be was perfected. Okay, Perfected in no way here implies that we can have perfect faith. Rather, what it means is that good works complete our faith. Faith, if it does not result in something, is incomplete, or as James puts it, is simply dead. Yes, faith's faith, excuse me, works neither saves us nor is it the basis of our acceptability to God. Paul tells us clearly that it is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. However, good faith, good works, excuse me, are the natural outworking and completion of true faith if done out of love and not out of an attitude of rule-keeping, achievement, or performance. In that passage about the sinful woman, washing Jesus' feet was clearly a work. But it was a good work done in a spirit of humility and repentance and worship. It was done as an outworking of her faith and love for Christ, not out of performance or certainly not out of requirement. Notice what Jesus said to her, Woman, your works. No! Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. On the other hand, if one is consumed with maintaining a system of rules and regulations 
it's hard to see the magnitude of one's own sins and the freedom that Christ brings. Focusing on rules and performance leaves little room for loving those who don't follow the rules as well. In Romans 7, Paul, who was once a Pharisee, recognizes this problem as a believer. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, deliver me from the body of this death? His answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, by his example, Paul preaches the gospel to himself and proclaims the power of God and his forgiveness. The gospel, the good news, is not just a plan that we present to unbelievers. It is a literal lifeline connecting us to God's forgiveness and strength to live and love every day. We must constantly remind ourselves of the truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And by preaching the gospel to ourselves every day and living in God's forgiveness, we also live in the sufficiency of Christ, not in our own. Our, our, our sins are really no surprise to God. Really. Because there is no condemnation, because we are totally acceptable to Him, we have the privilege to come to Him in repentance without fear of reprisal. We can't earn back His favor because we already have it through His work on the cross. Now, do we bear the consequences of our earthly sins? Yeah. But do we have to live in shame and guilt for our sin? No. Does He still accept us with open arms? Absolutely. Remember, He who is forgiven much loves much. And because of our security in Christ, we are then able to love others. To recap, if we live a life of repentance, preach the gospel to ourselves every day, and live in Christ's sufficiency, we will naturally mature spiritually and our faith will work itself out through love. That's how we present a loving Christ to the world. That is how the world around us will be changed. We've been talking a lot uh, over the last several months about a household approach to ministry. A household approach communicates love to those around us best. Why? Because it's based on relationships, not just attending programs and certainly not rule-keeping or performance. The Pharisees based their ministry on outward appearance and conformity to rules. Depending on your source, they came up with between 500 and 1,000 rules and regulations just out of 10 commandments. Jesus referred to them as whitewashed tombstones, indicating they appeared righteous on the outside, but their hearts were hard. If all we want in church are people who do and say the right thing, 
We really don't need Christ for that. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't publish and promulgate admission requirements. He accepts us where we are, based, not based upon how we act or look or on brownie points, but based upon what He did on the cross for our sins. He focused on hearts because the heart is the fountain, the source of genuine love, words, and actions. Faith working through love is how we get to the heart. So as we rethink our ministry in this new and frankly very different age that we find ourselves, we've got to rebuild on Christ. We've got to be flexible in our ministries and search for how to reach the hearts of both younger believers who need to be discipled and those outside who are looking for answers. You know, Christmas is a great time to minister to others. I encourage you to look for opportunities around you to do just that. You know, whether it's at the rescue mission, uh, going around trying to find people who need help, in your own neighborhood. You know, that's a great thing to do. But I encourage you not to just use the Christmas spirit, but rather the Holy Spirit to do the hard work of loving the world as God so loved the world all year round. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. Lord, we are so thankful. We can never express our gratitude because we don't deserve anything. But yet, you loved us enough, despite our sins, to send your Son to the cross for us. To die and pay the price that satisfies justice for our sins. Lord God, we pray that as individuals, as families or households, and as a church body, that we would take a fresh look at how we spread your good news to those around us. And let us not be so concerned about who's in control of the government but Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to control us. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being your servants. Help us to keep our focus upon you and do all for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.